0: Please don't let me get a scholarship Please don't put me on the training grant Just keep your money, I don't want the liability
1: (laughs) Don't shoot the messenger, okay? I didn't come up with these policies.
2: Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them Today on the show, we tell you everything you never wanted to know about the tax code for trainees Stay with us
0: And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode thirty-three. I'm Joshua Hall, and I'm Daniel Arniman. and we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Josh. I'm just I'm just picturing all the people that
2: just like zipped up their BSL three suit, put on the headphones inside, and then the intro is this is going to be about taxes, and they're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, we are going to talk about everybody's favorite topic taxes. We know that this is mainly your tissue culture uh, listening experience, so I'm sorry about this, but I think you're actually going to get something out of it. What if
0: you're an international listener? Um,
2: Then you don't have to worry about it.
0: You can just think about all the poor Americans paying taxes, I guess. That's true. We'll try to make this fun. We have a guest, so at least you'll get to hear a different voice.
2: And to make it even more fun, we have a a beer that kind of goes with the theme. So the theme today will be death and taxes, and I picked up the Brew for Your Die IPA from 21st Amendment Brewery in San Francisco. I love San Francisco. Do you? I do. When's the last time you got there?
0: I was out in San Francisco, geez, it's probably been been five years now.
2: Yeah, I've never been to this particular brewery. I would love to go, but um, yeah, I picked up this. It was a 12-pack of this California beer for $7.99 at a local gas station, so I was like, man, you can't pass that up. So
0: you can find this one outside of Yeah, they've got a little locator,
2: and I went on their website. Um, There are 10 places in this area you can get it. So I'm hoping that everybody uh, listening to us can get their hands on some. Uh, And this is quite a good IPA, if you ask me.
0: Have you had a bad IPA?
2: Yes, I have. (laughs) And
0: this is not one. This This is not a bad one. This This is is a really good one. This is a solid one.
2: And maybe because it was so cheap that I like it. I don't know. A good value IPA. Excellent. And the 21st Amendment, as you'll recall, Was the one repealing prohibition. To all of our San Francisco listeners, go and have a pint at the store for us.
0: Dan, you know, the Super Bowl was a couple weeks ago. Sports ball. That's right. And you did come over. Yeah, I did. And ate wings at my Super Bowl party. And I watched till
2: around the middle, and then Team B won, I think.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, Team B won. But did you know the part of the Super Bowl besides the game that's the most bet on, the most gambled upon? The uh, The halftime show? That, there'll
2: be a wardrobe malfunction? <laughs> <laughs> it's the coin flip. Oh, yeah. I like that. Probabilities. Yeah, so this is going to go the down. The coin flip of, is as interesting to me as the game is,
0: <laughs> sadly. It's like you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Side least, A or it's side least B. probability, right? yeah. Right? Well, I don't know why. I came across actually a different podcast I was listening this week, and they were talking about how coin flips are often used as the de facto random choice generator but they in fact are not random they gotta be close well apparently and i I did a little research on this the coin flip is not as random as we once thought there's actually a guy professor percy diaconis at stanford who is a professor of statistics and mathematics who extensively studies things like coin flipping and card shuffling sounds like a Great guy to have at your next party. Well, without going down too many rabbit holes, I got really interested in this. Apparently, this guy, before he became a professor at Stanford, he left home at 14 to follow a magician and so he was a he was a magician before he got into mathematics. He later in life went back to college. I and can, got his PhD at Harvard.
2: I can see the the link, although it's probably not a normal career path for yeah. a magician follower.
0: I know it's like the first ever magician turned PhD mathematician, but uh, I think it's pretty cool. Uh, but anyway, so what he did when he was at Harvard was he became interested in. Things having to do with stats and probability. So he had some engineers at Harvard build him a mechanical coin flipper. And so what they were able to do was generate a machine that 100% of the time could get a coin to land on the same side. Okay, but that does, that's not difficult because a machine can flip a coin with the exact same velocity and, and spin to it and get it to land. Well, it's true, but if you think about it, we, in our heads, think about the coin flip as a random event. But I think what, that's because people are involved. Exactly, you couldn't do it. Exactly. And so, but, but his notion, what he said this proved, was that flipping a coin was more of a physics thing than a random thing.
2: Yeah, that's true. I think that's right. If you knew every input into the flip, you could know how it would land.
0: Exactly. So, what he did was he actually did research on the action of a coin flip, and what they found was... For a uh, long story short, is that for a natural coin flip, it will come up on the side that it starts on 51% of the time. Okay, so next time somebody makes me bet
2: on a coin flip, I should pick whatever side they have face up as they start up. You absolutely should. And, and so, I'll be right one more time.
0: <laughs> out of 100. Yeah, great. Hey, every little bit counts. It sure does. So if you want to actually read this research paper, there's a lot of cool physics there's things like angular momentum vector, et cetera. We're going to link that. But I'll also link a paper. I really went down the rabbit hole here, Dan. I was reading on NCBI, how random is the toss of a coin by the Canadian Medical Association Journal? What? What? <laughs> just, just what? <laughs> First of all, I couldn't figure out why the Canadian Shouldn't Medical they be Association... Shouldn't diseases just, <laughs> and not flipping coins? <laughs> well, this study really cracked me up uh, because apparently they, they got some doctors in their unit that they recruited uh, 13 doctors and they performed 300 coin tosses and they were told your job is to try to get heads as many times as you can. Come on, Canada. Were they flipping loonies? Well, <laughs> so apparently what they were trying to prove was that coin flips could be manipulated. Oh, of course. Yeah. And so so basically <laughs> the way to incentivize these, these people to do their best job of getting as many heads as possible. If you were the person who got the most heads, you got a $20 coffee gift card. You know what you don't want to be is the guy (laughs) that gets operated
2: on by the doctor who lost, and he's just like mad he couldn't get his coin to flip right. He had no coffee that day because he was out of money.
0: I thought maybe they were studying this because they were like, we're going to amputate right leg or left leg. Let's flip. Oh, no. (laughs) So so anyway, um, so each of these 13 participants tossed the coin 300 times, and... The result they got was that every participant actually was successful at manipulating the outcome to get heads more often than tails. In fact, the most successful person at doing this, the one who scored the $20 Starbucks card, got heads 68% of the time. That's impressive. Now, I assume you're going to be at home
2: practicing, so the next time you and I have a coin flip, you just win it. Yes,
0: yeah, so if you really want to jit people, you yep. can practice your coin flip to vastly uh, improve the odds in your favor. But even if you don't, you should know that 51% of the time, there's a slight edge to guessing the side that is up when you flip. You heard it here first, people. The very important news. I will lastly say that does not take into account the 1 in 6,000 chance of it landing on its edge didn't uh a recent
2: primary get decided by coin flip and it came up very unusually in one person's favor that's
0: right in the iowa that's caucus more in, that's
2: more interesting than a super yeah, bowl the, flip this the, is like the iowa caucus now.
0: hillary clinton's campaign won six consecutive coin flips so i assume her campaign had their own coin flippers who uh <laughs> had practiced or something like that 0.5 to the 6th power right <laughs> that's right power and knowledge so Anyway, let's move on to taxes.
1: I'm Emily Roberts. I have a business called PF for PhDs LLC. That stands for Personal Finance for PhDs. And I have a PhD in biomedical engineering. And what I do now full time is help graduate students and postdocs with their uh, finances.
0: That sounds like a pretty good job. I like the sound of that. Yeah, so, so you said your degree was in biomedical engineering? That's correct. So how did you transition from that to helping grad students out with finances?
1: Well, basically what happened for me is that I got out of undergrad and I actually was going to do a fellowship at the NIH in Bethesda. And I kind of saw my, you know, fellowship pay and was like, how am I going to make $24,000 a year in the DC area work? And so that was kind of when I started learning about personal finance and really just fell in love with the subject so when I started graduate school, um, about halfway through my PhD, I started blogging about personal finance, again, because I was so like, interested in how I and others should really manage our stipends to the best of our ability, you know, that limited income for a long period of time can be really challenging. And I found that uh, whenever I wrote about grad student specific personal finance issues, those blog posts got really high and sustained traffic. And I received lots of comments and emails from grad students all over the country, you know, asking me follow-up questions or thanking me for my work. And that really clued me in that this was an area of great need among my own peer group. So basically, when I finished my PhD, you know, I had known for a number of years that I wasn't interested in continuing on a research track, although I did think I was going to, you know, go for a kind of alternative career, so to speak. Um, and I did actually pursue a policy fellowship in DC, I did one about a semester after I graduated at the National Academies. But that whole time, I couldn't get this idea of helping grad students with personal finance out of my head. And I just was like, I'm going to take this opportunity. It's a good time in my life um, to just strike all the irons hot and try to make this into a business.
2: I think that's great. And, and it, being from the inside, I think gives you a perspective um, you know, it's kind of a unique world. It's, it's different to be a biomedical grad student and having, you know, you can't just go to the, the bookstore and pick up the latest book on personal finance because it's, you know, there are some things in there for you, but it's going to be really different if, if you're in grad school.
1: Yeah, I agree. And that's what I try to do is I, you know, I've learned a lot about personal finance generally, and I guess, especially personal finance for millennials, I would say. And I just try to kind of distill that into what graduate students really need to know and interpret it in a way that actually applies for them. So the subject that we'll be talking about today, um, income taxes, is one where it can be difficult for graduate students to just read general material and have that perfectly apply for them.
0: Yeah, and that's why we're excited to have you on. We've gotten, you know, a couple different questions from grad students about various issues dealing with taxes and being a graduate student. And we certainly don't want to uh, give them the wrong advice and have them thrown into jail or run up a big bill. So we want you to bear that responsibility. Yeah, instead. we should, we should <laughs> say
2: that we will, we will not be giving direct, you know, we're not going to read some of the questions we've gotten because we cannot give direct advice. Um, but what we want to do is is to just let Emily tell us a little bit about some of the special circumstances. Um, I think this is probably the first time some people have had to think about and pay their own taxes. I know that when I was, you know, in college, my parents kind of handled it. And so you go to grad school, maybe it's your first time out of the nest, in effect. And and now you've got this W-2 or whatever kind of form comes in, what are you supposed to do with it? So um, Emily, take us through it.
1: Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, I was in the same situation, you know, all through college, my parents I guess, did my taxes for me if I even had, you know, much income to pay taxes on. But it was a completely different story once I got into graduate school. Actually, let's back up because I want to get a big, strong disclaimer in here. The scope of our conversation today is going to be limited to taxes for domestic graduate students in the United States. I'm not a tax professional. I am not a professional financial anything. Josh and Dan are not professional tax people either. And I often pay taxes.
0: Does that count? (laughs) Wait, we have Uh, to pay taxes? (laughs) So I'm hoping you're going to say grad students don't ever have to pay taxes because I never did. Yeah, stop it. Just kidding. Just a joke, everyone. Let her her do the official disclaimer. Sorry, disclaimer.
1: (laughs) No, um, I, I have met grad students who are third and fourth year PhDs who have never paid any kind of income tax. And it's not a pleasant conversation that we have at that point, you know? Okay,
2: but the point is that we are not tax professionals. We are not giving tax advice.
1: Exactly. And we're also not talking about any individual tax situation. So we're going to keep this on a very high level. And I'm going to be referring extensively to IRS publication 970. Oh, good. So 970? In, That's know,
0: my favorite. We, tax we will link that bad boy in the show notes for people who want to go deeper.
2: Yeah. So, yeah.
1: so basically, our goal here Sorry.
0: is
2: to give you the questions to ask uh, not to give out the answers, and I think as you listen to this, you will hear things that you did not know you needed to think about, and and once you hear it, I think it'll be it'll give you the right language to be able to ask a tax professional.
1: Yeah, that's exactly my goal is to kind of. Um I, I've come up with this framework. It's not unique to me, really. I've drawn on IRS language, but I've tried to kind of build a bridge between the language that the IRS uses and the language that students and universities use. So when you do you know, think about your income and look at the forms you received and so forth, you can kind of fit that into the overall tax code and understand what you should do with it. Perfect. Well, get us started. Okay. So the framework that we're going to be discussing today is what type of pay have you received as a graduate student? Did you receive compensatory pay or non-compensatory pay?
2: That's a $4 word. Uh, hopefully you'll break that down for us.
1: Uh, I will. Yeah. Um, this parallels really closely with earned and uh, unearned income uh, in terms of grad student pay. So you might have heard those terms, earned income or taxable compensation and those are, you know, tax terms. But we'll break it down as to what falls into compensatory pay and what falls into non-compensatory pay. And by compensatory, I'm essentially using, you know, it's the same root word as compensation. So, compensation, you're being paid for something. You're being paid to do a job. So, in the case of graduate students, those graduate students who have assistantships, RAs, TAs, GAs, they are receiving compensatory pay because they are being paid to do their job, which is be an assistant, you know, of whatever kind. Okay. So does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot
2: of sense. So when I was a research assistant for my PI, my PI was paying me compensation basically for my work. Exactly. And, and what, what is now, the, the other, other side of that? What is the other kind of money I can make?
1: Yeah, the, the, the flip side of that, the non-compensatory side is what you're receiving if you have a fellowship um, any scholarships you might receive, you know, the, the benefits you receive for being a graduate student. Some people might also, especially in the biomedical sciences, call that being on a training grant. Like if you're on a training grant in your first or second year of graduate school, uh, I sort of classify that as fellowship pay, but it's it's also non-compensatory.
2: So this is an award that you receive just for being a great human being, but they don't expect you, I mean, it's not because you are doing work, it's just a scholarship or an award.
1: Yeah, ostensibly you're not doing Right, 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 yeah. Uh, we all know that, uh, that is On the books, ridiculous. you're not
2: being required to do work, but in the reality, you're still doing all the work.
1: Yes, absolutely. So those are the two broad types of pay. Um, compensatory pay for assistantships and non-compensatory pay for fellowships and scholarships. I do like to um, defer to using the words compensatory and non-compensatory because this language can differ somewhat among universities. And the other factor is that grad students don't always know exactly why they're receiving their stipend. Like... You know, I had a fellowship one year, but I was doing the same work that an RA did. So, you know, it's it gets kind of hazy.
0: Yeah, I know at our university, for example, almost all the grad students get the same amount of money on a yearly basis. But the source of that money can come from different places. And sometimes that's opaque to the grad student, whether it's coming from a training grant or just from PI research dollars.
1: I mean, yes, just- exactly.
2: So you're you're making this distinction between compensatory and non-compensatory. It sounds like it's very murky. What does it mean for their, their taxes? Isn't it just the same thing? It's
1: all money. Well, it, <laughs> it depends on what you mean by just the same thing. So there uh, is a difference. So the way that they're the same, the way that compensatory and non-compensatory income are the same, are that they're both taxed as ordinary income. So whatever, you know, tax bracket you're falling into, whatever tax rate, it's going to be calculated the same way, whether your source was compensatory pay or non-compensatory pay. There are some more subtle differences that include the tax forms that you receive um, and also whether or not you're eligible for certain credits or deductions, depending on which type you receive. So high level, you're going to be paying the same amount of tax Once you get into the details, there are important differences.
2: Okay, so first take-home message for everybody still paying attention to our tax code discussion. No matter what kind of pay you're getting in graduate school, you are expected to pay income tax on it. I think that's uh, an important thing. So if you're in year three and you have not, it's time to seek that tax professional. Um, But what you're saying is the details of how how you're taxed are a little bit different and you cannot do the same kind of deductions.
1: Yeah, I want to add one more note about non-compensatory pay. So I'm lumping fellowship income and scholarship income into non-compensatory pay and saying, "Okay, that's, you know, potentially taxable income." But it's really only taxable to the degree that it exceeds your qualified education expenses. So, for example, you know, you receive a scholarship and then that scholarship goes to paying your tuition. And this is all done kind of like behind the scenes, right? You're not actually necessarily receiving the money directly. Because you have that scholarship and then that qualified education expense that exactly balances the scholarship, that scholarship income then becomes tax free. So that's important to know. But the thing that you really need to focus on is did you have any net scholarship income, so scholarship and then income that exceeded your qualified education expenses, or did you have net qualified education expenses that exceeded your scholarship income? Because that, in addition to your stipend, needs to be accounted for in your tax return.
2: So basically, school costs more than the money you got in your scholarship, or vice versa. Both of those are different cases that you're going to need to ask about.
1: Yes. And that's probably going to be a minor amount of money, you know, compared to like your full stipend, but it is supposed to go into the math.
0: Okay, so tell us a little bit about what are, some of these, what are some of these differences that, that students need to be aware of uh, if they have compensatory or non-compensatory sources of income? And how will they know which
2: one they have?
1: Yeah, that, that's the question we need to address first. So um, especially for those students who, again, are like, well, I'm just doing research on a day day basis. I don't know where my money comes from. Um, how you can tell whether or not you have compensatory or non-compensatory pay definitively is by the type of tax form that you receive. So graduate students with, a, with compensatory pay, those who have assistantships, will definitely receive W-2s from their universities, barring some kind of human error.
2: Oh, that's great. That's what I get at my, like, grown-up job, too. So that's a, that's a you know, you get a salary, you get a W-2, you pay your taxes, everybody's happy.
1: Yeah. And so that's actually a really simple type of income to deal with because everybody is familiar with it because every, you know, employee in America has W-2 income. So this is the part that kind of gets confusing because it actually varies among universities. So universities are not required to report non-compensatory pay uh, to the student or to the IRS, So, they have chosen some of them different ways of doing that. So, although they don't have to, some of them have decided to do so and they take different methods. So, (laughs) the forms that you might um, come across for your non compensatory pay include a 1098 T, a 1099 Miscellaneous with Box 3 Income. Those are two official types of forms. The intended purpose of Form 1098-T is to help students and parents claim tax breaks for their education expenses. Universities are supposed to generate 1098-Ts for anyone who has more qualified education expenses than scholarship income. However, most PhD students fall into the reverse category of having more scholarship income or an equal amount of scholarship income to their qualified education expenses. And so in those cases, some universities do generate the 1098-T, some universities don't generate the 1098-T. Um, an unofficial type of reporting would be on a courtesy letter. So it's basically just a letter from your university that says, this is the amount of you know, fellowship income you had for the year, and we're not going to going to give you any tax advice. And then the last option, of course, is that they don't have to do the reporting at all. So some students receiving fellowships and some students receiving scholarship income may have no communications whatsoever from their university regarding that pay.
2: So is up is entirely up to them to know that they owe taxes on their pay and no one tells them that.
1: Yes, it is entirely up to them, uh, and no one tells them. So many universities have almost like a gag order in place where their staff members are not allowed to discuss taxes with the students uh, for liability reasons. So it can, even the people who know what to do, who know all the answers, who are the most well-informed, often are not allowed to talk to students about this subject.
2: Okay, so everybody out there listening, if you didn't get a form by now, um, you might be one of these people. Uh, go find out how you're supposed to pay your taxes. Yeah,
0: so who, who should they ask? So they, let's say you're in one of these situations where your university doesn't tell you anything and they're actually afraid to tell you anything for risk of their own liability. Who then should you turn to if you're a grad student in that situation?
1: Well, the first place to turn to is your own student account. So at my university they called that a bursar account. I've also heard it called a cashier's account, or there may be other names for it, but basically it's your student account where all your like, you know, fees and scholarships and so forth have been posted.
0: Okay. And and would that be so if you go the way to that, you find out how much money you actually earned?
1: Well, probably for your scholarship uh, and qualified education expenses, you need to go into there and look at all the individual transactions if you haven't received a 1098T for it. So you can you know, reference your own student account. But in terms of like your stipend, uh, if you received a fellowship, which is you know the type that you would receive if you didn't have any documentation, uh, you may just have to go into your uh, bank accounts and add up <laughs> how much money you received over the course of the year.
0: This is getting worse and worse, Emily. This is Okay. So, I know in I almost feel like please don't let me get a scholarship. Please yeah. don't put me on the training grant. Just keep your money. I don't want the liability. <laughs> so, in in my
2: work, I'm I'm paying taxes in every paycheck. So they're they're withholding over the course of the year, and then I get a nice refund or maybe I owe a little bit. Are they doing that if they're not even telling me that I owe taxes? Are they actually withholding?
1: Uh They are not. So in the case of graduate students receiving...
2: Give me me something here.
1: (laughs) Don't shoot the messenger, okay? I didn't come up with these policies. Um, So for graduate students receiving compensatory pay, W-2 pay, they're going to have their withholding set up. You know, it's kind of done almost automatically. They're going to submit a W-4. It's all kind of uh, behind the scenes. So that's great. And I always encourage students, if they have the option of having taxes withheld, to exercise that option. Graduate students receiving non-compensatory pay may or may not be given that option by their universities. So in my observation, I don't think this is a hard and fast rule, but in my observation, when students have received a 1099 miscellaneous that documents their fellowship income, that is because they had taxes withheld. So the 1099 miscellaneous is a way to tell the recipient, hey, this was your gross income, this was the amount of tax you had withheld, you know, federal and state, etc., cetera. Now if you have received a 1098T, a courtesy letter or no reporting for your income taxes, that implies that you did not have any taxes withheld through the course of the year.
2: Okay, so so then you're in in some other kind of trouble. But that's at least helpful. So if you get that form, you may have had taxes withheld. This is we're getting so deep into the morass of of just how broken this system seems to be. I know that that no one designed it to be this way, but it really does feel very unfair to the people that are on that particular side of the coin.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. This it seems to me that you know the tax code was not amenable to people who are actually receiving full time incomes in the form of fellowships and scholarships, right? It's sort of supposed to be these small awards that almost always get eaten up by qualified education expenses. But to have this, you know, net non compensatory income is a really, it's a really strange thing. And actually, many professional tax preparers um, are not familiar with this type of situation. Um, tax software is sometimes really hard to deal with when you have any kind of non compensatory pay, whether it's a large amount or small amount, because Um, especially if a 1098-T isn't issued. They're just not accustomed to processing this type of information. So, you know, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm trying to help the students uh, to the best of my ability as a layperson in this matter.
2: No, But but that's really good. And so everybody listening now is going to be that much smarter. They're going to ask the right questions, and they're going to advocate for themselves to get it done the correct way. Um, Hopefully they will tell their friends who are in the same program what they need
0: to do, or, or at least get them on the right track. So, I have a question. I know when you have a W 2 and compensatory income and you fill out your taxes, there are certain um, deductions that you can take, uh, certain, I guess, withholding you can do. Is that different? Are there different rules that apply for non compensatory? Income as far as making certain deductions against it.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're certainly claiming child care tax credits and mortgage interest deductions and whatever. charitable giving yeah.
0: and these types of things. Does that apply for non compensatory income as well?
1: Yeah, it definitely depends on the exact um, type of deduction or credit that you're uh, you're trying to take. So I'm. Like I said, not a tax professional, not familiar with every single you know credit reduction that a student might take. But the keywords to look out for um, when a student is reading a- about a tax deduction or a tax credit that he or she is interested in, um, the keywords to look for are taxable compensation and earned income. So, if um, a credit reduction requires taxable compensation or earned income uh, to take it. If that student has only non-compensatory pay for that entire calendar year for their entire household, they may not be able to take that credit or deduction. So I have two examples of that. Obviously, I I don't know for every single one, but there are two main examples that graduate students run across typically. The first is um, for contributing to an individual retirement arrangement or IRA. Uh, I am a huge proponent of people saving for retirement as early as possible. Um, using an IRA is often the only option available to graduate students, but you have to have taxable compensation to contribute to an IRA. Or your spouse, if you're married, has to have taxable compensation for you to contribute to an IRA. Um, so if you're not receiving W-2 income, you know, if you only have these weird other types of income, that means you don't have taxable compensation for the year and you're not eligible to contribute to an IRA. So that's a big, big disappointment, I think, for a lot of graduate students who are receiving especially generous fellowships that allow them some kind of you know, excess income on a yearly basis. Um, it, it's a really hard pill to swallow that they aren't eligible for an IRA in that case.
2: Yeah, even if they wanted to put 20 or $10 a month or something into an IRA, it compounds and it actually makes a difference and they can't do it, basically, if they're getting that type of income.
1: That's correct. And then the other example. Um, so that's a taxable compensation example. An earned income example is for the earned income credit, which a lot of people with really low incomes or possibly, you know, dependent children would qualify for. But as the name implies, you need earned income to qualify for the credit. So again, if your entire household, the entire calendar year has only non compensatory pay, you're not going to be eligible to take that credit
2: strike 8 against you <laughs> if you're on non-compensatory
0: pay. Well, so so Emily, this I actually
1: is... have good news though. Oh, good. oh we need oh, some good news,
0: please. Credit.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, let's say there's a situation where a grad student receiving non-compensatory pay is married to a person with a real job, um probably with a low income and they have, you know, a couple of kids or something. The spousal income is going to be earned income, so the spouse will, call, will qualify the household for the credit. Um, but the graduate students non-compensatory pay will not count against those income limits. So there could be an excess, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars coming into the household that is sort of not recognized by the calculation for the earned income credit. So the household income looks a lot lower than it actually is. So they might actually qualify for the credit.
2: So you heard it here first, grad students, postdocs, go find a sugar daddy or a sugar mama to get married to so you can open an IRA in graduate school.
0: Which will be useful for at least the few years you're in graduate school. Yeah, Well. Yeah. So Emily, this has been...
1: Or uh, get a side income.
0: Oh, that's true. That's true.
2: Yeah. So if you have any kind of, of earned income, then it makes you eligible. Is that right?
1: Yep. Taxable compensation for an IRA and earned income for the earned income credit. Yeah. So um, again, it's for the whole calendar year. So if your funding source changes from one semester to the next, you know, maybe earlier in the year you didn't qualify, but then later in the year you did, that all counts. Um, and if you have income that's outside of your income as a graduate student, like if you are self-employed as like a tutor, for example that self-employment income is going to qualify you as having, you know, taxable compensation or earned income.
0: So I imagine, you know, a lot of our listeners will will have some questions and have some research for their individual situations that they want to do. You sent us some resources that go along with what you're talking about today. We're going to link those on our show notes. Do you have any other resources that that you recommend?
1: Well, as I kind of said at the beginning, really the best place to go to is IRS Publication 970. So, pretty much everything I've said today, you can find in like Chapter 1 of Publication 970. It's not as hard to read as you might think. It's actually not that intimidating, especially once you are used to this vocabulary a little bit. So really, if you have any questions, I say go to the source material because that's kind of what you can trust, more so than you can trust me or another random person on the internet or your tax preparer or whatever. So I really recommend Publication 970. Um, In addition, I have created a bunch of um, resources on taxes for graduate students. They can all be found at my website, gradstudentfinances.org. There is a whole section on taxes. So just navigate through there and you'll get all kinds of articles and videos that I've made about this subject. I would also love for the listeners of this podcast to contact me with any questions they have about personal finance for early career PhDs. Related to taxes, not related to taxes, anything is great. My email address is emily at gradstudentfinances.org. And you can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Reddit, etc. All my social media contact information is going to be in the show notes for today.
0: That is fantastic.
2: Yeah, that's really great. Thank you so much, Emily. And I assume uh, if we get any questions from listeners on finances in the future, we can give you a call at any random time and, and find you on the
1: line. I would love that.
2: Are you ready for this week's etymology puzzle? I was born ready. The clue last week was scientists made a heavy and important discovery when they observed this type of wave created by the collision of two black holes. I think I know this one, Dan. Okay, what do you have? Lay it on me.
0: This was the big news uh, a week or two ago.
2: Yeah, I'm trying to keep it relevant here, current events. This was, uh, was this the gravitational waves? It was gravitational waves. I would have accepted gravitation or gravity, which comes from your favorite Latin, And in Latin, gravis means heavy or burdensome. So it's like they had a sense of heaviness before they had a sense of gravity. It wasn't used until the 1620s that it became uh, a reference to this acceleration force that pulls things toward the ground.
0: Also like that's heavy. Is that also where you get...
2: Like grave, like grave danger? Well, I'm so glad that you asked, Josh, because, yeah, we are in grave danger. This is a very grave situation. It comes from that same Latin root. But what I found fascinating this week is that is not where we get the noun grave, like the hole you bury people in. That that word grave comes from a totally different place, Proto-Indo-European, which actually predates Latin. And that mean that's comes from the word greb, which means to dig, scratch, or scrape. So, like, this very ancient people had a language where they were like describing digging a hole
0: to put something in Uh, and that's where the noun comes from but yeah they're totally different words so the adjective grave and the noun grave do not at all have the same etymology so heavy that's cool that is like that is actually cool dan see i try
2: so your clue for next week so oh we have to decide the winner don't we Oh, do we have some correct answers? We had only two correct answers, <gasps> surprisingly. Two correct
0: answers? Yeah. How are we going to decide? I think we should decide it in a, in a very special way. Well, technically, you got three correct answers. Because you, yeah, but you I can't win. Yeah. We could flip
2: a coin. Let's do it. This is a coin flip for the two correct answers this week, Vanessa
0: and Christy. You want to do it? Well, but I have to ask, who is going to get the slightly better odds by getting the side that is face up when i flip
2: ah that's a good question how about the first person that sent it in which was vanessa okay so let me get my coin out here okay so vanessa will be heads christy will be tails which side is up starting heads is up okay let it go (laughs) (laughs) what was it of course it's heads oh well vanessa congratulations you won because of statistics
0: science it's
2: physics all right well congratulations and if you're ready i'll give you next week's clue which is so trivially easy that i expect everybody to answer this one correctly the clue for next week is this mosquito-borne virus is making headlines as a danger to pregnant women but some scientists suggest that the panic is overgrown i'll read it one more time this mosquito-borne virus is making headlines as a danger to pregnant women But some scientists suggest that the panic is overgrown. Tell me the name of that virus. And honestly, if you don't know the name of that virus, email me and tell me you don't know. I will just assume you've been working very hard in lab and not turning on the radio or the TV or looking at a newspaper, and I'll feel bad enough for you, I'll still put you into the drawing. I expect emails from everybody this week. You will get a sympathy vote. Puzzle at hellophd.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I'm looking forward to finding out what this word means. Yeah, you're going to love it. It's a really cool one. Uh, Have you finished your Brew Free or Die IPA? Dan, I know we drink a lot of IPAs on here, but this really is good. It's quite good. Celebrate the 21st Amendment
0: and the 16th Amendment. by your taxes. Dan, it's been a great show, as usual. If you guys are listening and you've got a topic you would like for us to discuss or a comment or feedback on a past show, you can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at HelloPhD or contact us on the Facebook page. We'll see you next week. See you next week.
1: Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me. man yeah